This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For the State, the show where journalists talk journalism, I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, we need to talk about Pauline. What's a journalist to do when facts mean nothing? Plus, new legislation will make it mandatory for media outlets to run ads for both sides of the marriage equality campaign. But are all marriage equality campaign ads created equal? And the Washington Post now wants Edward Snowden, the man whose information helped him to win a Pulitzer, to be prosecuted. What does this mean for whistleblowers? Joining me in the studio is assistant editor at Guardian Australia, Bridie Jabour. Hello, Bridie. Hello. And reporter at BuzzFeed, Lane Sainley. Hey, Lane. Hey, how are you going? And joining us on the line from Canberra is Crikey's political editor, Bernard Keane. Hey, Bernard. G'day. All right, let's get into it. In the current issue of Mianjin, Catherine Murphy argues the problem with countering Hansenism today, unlike in the 90s when Pauline Hansen first entered politics, is that facts just don't seem to matter anymore. Murphy writes, journalists have to understand that the rules of our game are being rewritten. We have to understand that we now practice in a post-truth environment where audiences can increasingly choose to exist comfortably inside bubbles, selecting only the information and commentary that reinforces their views. She continued, This cohort feels the whole media political superstructure is lying to them and manipulating them and countering this belief with exhaustive explanation sometimes only escalates the feelings of rage, more lies, more manipulations. Bernard, you've been in the game since Hanson first came into public view. Do you agree with Murphy? Do facts matter less now than they used to? Well, let's not forget that Pauline Hanson had a pretty successful political career first time around. I mean, she she didn't last long in Parliament, but she did manage to get a senator into the Senate. And back then, I don't recall the facts having too much of an impact on, uh, on Hansenism. I do agree, though, with... Catherine, that we have moved much more into a of a post-fact media environment now. And that's mainly because I think the internet enables people to access uh, a lot more information and non-information, misinformation that, um, that they can pick and choose from to, to serve their own beliefs. I mean, the internet's a, a wonderful device for serving up pretty much whatever you want. Uh, And if you're a conspiracy theorist, then there's all sorts of stuff out there. Right. But thinking specifically about the media landscape, you've mentioned there the opportunity for fringe groups to come together and find a sense of community. 
I'm interested to know, Bridie, what role do you think social media has played? And without social media, do you think we would have seen Hanson's resurgence? I think it's possible we would have seen her resurgence because there's other things at play. One of the biggest things globalisation and, and the turn of economies, but it certainly has played a very significant role. You just have to go to Hanson's Facebook page to see what a role that's played. She's got more followers on there than Bill Shorten does, and <laughs> she's incredibly engaged. She responds to people all the time, every day. Before she was elected, she responded a lot more, and she responded to people who questioned her too and who came on to doubt her and came on to criticise her. She would respond to them as well and make and make them look silly to other followers who, you know, believed in Hanson's worldview. So it's played a big role. And also Facebook with its algorithms and its silos also obviously makes it a lot easier to operate in a bubble. You know, Facebook's going to keep showing you articles that it knows you're interested in. And if you keep being interested in articles about immigration and that don't have a lot of facts in them about Muslims and that sort of thing, it's going to keep showing them. So it really does feed your worldview. And I've actually been out speaking to Hanson voters over the past couple of months. And that's really what I found. A lot of them spoke about Facebook and a lot of them would reference articles or news that they had seen, but not in depth. They would say, oh, I saw this headline and it said this. And they would say they heard things on television as well, but it was never very in depth. And I I think, I'm not quite sure that we're in post-fact world yet, but I think that we're in a truthiness world. So things that sound true, people really believe in, or some of the things they were saying did have a nugget of truth to them. Like they would start on about foreign investment and say that car manufacturing, for example, has moved overseas, which is true. But from that point, they then move to Muslims are taking all our jobs, immigrants are taking all our jobs, and they're the reason for this. Social media definitely played huge role in her rise but there's also as Bernard was saying other factors that have been around for a long time too. Do you think it's actually her on her own social media accounts because when I look at Donald Trump and the way that he engages I think he's actually at the keyboard responding to people and actually making his own status on Facebook. I've thought about this a lot and and sometimes when they respond to certain people they will say PH team to signal that it's someone else. But reading her comments and going back, especially before the July election, when she was really building this community, yes, I think it's her. I, I think it was always her. I she, it, she has the same tone, the same way that she writes and in a lot of it. And it doesn't take that much effort to write back to these people as well. But you, it was amazing the people I spoke to who would say, I, I was speaking to Pauline. I've spoken to Pauline. I'd say, wow, when did you speak to her? And they said, oh, on Facebook, she replied to my comment, or I sent her a direct message to warn her about trolls. And she wrote back and said, thank you. Wow. Like? For what it's worth, I do think her presence on social media is um, very authentic in a quite strange way. I I think one of the videos that she posted a few weeks ago was of her basically opening the mail that she had received from constituents. And it was just at the same time incredibly awkward but also felt very natural she was just carrying this big bag of mail around her office and kind of fussing to herself and dumping it out on the couch to be like all these people have written to me this is a senator wandering around and you know the fact that she she did choose to make a video of her doing something totally kind of unscripted the fact that the feature of the video was actual mail that she had received from constituents and she wanted to put on show that people had been Um, writing to her, it it makes her seem more approachable and more in touch with the people. And that's obviously the line that she runs with all the time. I'm Pauline Hanson. I'm the voice of Australians who aren't getting a voice. Guardian Australia's editor, Lenore Taylor, wrote last week, 
Hanson's at her strongest when she can turn a factual interrogation of her policies into a personal attack. Another example of standing up to the elites who've had it in for ordinary people, a validation of her core message to her constituency. It's a journalist's role to hold politicians to account. But how do you do that if you can't grill them? If you can't get up in their face and and ask them questions that they should be able to answer when it's interpreted as if you're bullying them? In some ways, Pauline is more adept at that game than a lot of other politicians. Um, I think there's been a general trend amongst major party politicians in recent years to actively avoid questioning. I mean, Tony Abbott used to very rarely, for example, go on current affairs programs like 7.30 where he would actually be subjected to a sustained grilling. And, you know, a lot of the time when he did, he, he ended up stuffing up. Politicians don't like giving good journalists the opportunity to repeatedly question them. They much prefer media conferences where you go, got to yell out over each other and you can't subject them to follow-up questions and really and really pressure them. Um, whereas Pauline Hanson goes a step further and actually sort of, as you say, turns that into a display of her victimhood. This is just another smart-ass uh, member of the, of the media elite uh, giving her a hard time with their so-called facts. And that reinforces. And the fact that she's inarticulate, the fact that she stumbles over her words, that she gets things wrong, in a way just lends to her, who her, to her authenticity. We, but again, we've seen this before. I mean, Joe Bajorki-Peterson made, he developed a whole media strategy with the aid of Clive Palmer, who was his, his press secretary of inarticulacy. This is a sort of a, a the, the less articulate you, you are, the more effectively you communicate to your, to your core audience. They're from a segment of society that feels that they are, um, that they have missed out. These are people who have a very pessimistic view of the world, who feel excluded from what's been happening in Australia economically and socially for so mm-hmm. long. And that exclusion uh, is critically important. It's that exclusion that they share with Pauline when they see her being beaten up by a journalist. If Pauline's true believers are looking at her being interviewed and seeing themselves in her, seeing themselves being bullied by journalists, how then as a journalist do you change tack so that you can get an honest answer out of someone? Your main job as a journalist is not to mislead your your audience or your readers. And that means that if she's saying something that's blatantly false, you've got to flag that it's blatantly false. You've got to be able to say, well, actually, Pauline Hanson has said X about Muslim slash Asians slash anything, really. And, you know, she's wrong. But it may, to the inarticulate and the excluded, look like you are, you are beating up on Pauline, but your first duty is always to your readership or audience to make sure that they're not misled. And I think that's where you've got to start from. 95% of Australians didn't vote for Hanson's One Nation. Some might say that in a perfect world, Hanson should only receive proportionate media coverage. But if you know that her lovers and her haters will watch, listen and read everything that she has to say, is it the media's responsibility to hold back? You say 5% voted for her. Well, that's not just the influence that she's wielding in the Senate. The implication that 5% of the population are the only ones who cares. Like, she's going to be affecting a lot of legislation in the in the years to come. You, we can't set a bar of how much we're going to cover and how much we're not going to cover. Those are for newsrooms to make day to day, but with always keeping in mind that you can't just give her every headline and print every outrageous thing that she says. Lane, do you have a comment on that? Um, I, I guess on that, I, I would... I think there is 
something of a of a false equivalence that's been set up that criticizing Hanson in the media amounts to somehow disenfranchising her voters. Um, and I think that that's something that we've heard coming from a lot of members of the coalition. So often if they're presented with something outrageous that Hanson said, the response is, you know, she's democratically elected. And yes, she is democratically elected and people did vote for her, but that doesn't mean that the things that she says um, should be free of scrutiny, nor does it mean that pointing out that some of the things she says are wrong is somehow calling the people who voted for her idiots or... or, um, you know, making them out to be lesser in in some way. And I think that at the moment for the media is a really difficult line to walk because as both Bernard and and Bridie pointed out, the people that voted for her do have very genuine feelings of of disenfranchisement. And although those feelings may not be solved by stopping Muslim immigration, that doesn't mean they don't come from a very valid place. Hanson isn't going to solve their problems. Even if Muslim immigration was stopped, which let's hope it's not. It's not the answer. It isn't going to make things better for these people. And so she's selling them a false product. And that is the real tragedy of her. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Bridie Jabour, Lane Sainty and Bernard Keane. Last year, SBS rejected an anti-same-sex marriage advertisement by the Australian Marriage Foundation to air during its coverage of the Mardi Gras. But if a plebiscite on same-sex marriage gets up, SBS won't be able to deny airtime to any no-campaigner who wants to buy it, under legislation introduced by the Turnbull government. For the month leading up to the plebiscite, TV and radio stations will be forced to air advertisements for both the yes and the no campaigns. The government says the rule is necessary to ensure that media outlets, quote, cannot selectively broadcast only one side of the debate. Bernard, there's no special requirement for commercial media outlets to be balanced in their news coverage or commentary. So should commercial media outlets have a right to choose which side of the same-sex marriage debate they're on when it comes to advertising? I I just have an innate objection to the idea that we should be telling broadcasters what they can broadcast. I mean, ultimately, it should be a matter for them rather than for, uh, for regulation to say, well... You've got, to, uh, you've got to adhere to some restrictions to which the internet isn't subjected, to which newspapers aren't subjected, and to which, uh, as far as I know, radio is not. The basic idea is that TV is an enormously influential medium, and therefore uh, there have to be these tight restrictions on the way that they cover public policy because they could influence voters in a way that a newspaper uh, can't, particularly, particularly newspapers these days, given, uh, given the, you know, the, the state of the state of readership. So that for me is kind of one of the significant issues in this because I don't think that TV really any longer has that kind of cachet of being the influential medium. Lane, no campaigners claim that people have the right to vote according to their deeply held religious and social views. So if it's a matter of deeply held views, why would they need $7.5 million to advertise? That's a really good question. There has been, since the government announced that they would be funding either side to to the tune of $7.5 million, a lot of criticism of that decision. And one of the the big arguments against it is that it will, you know, essentially fund a campaign that is intended to, to denigrate LGBTI Australians. Another argument against it is the idea that that money will be used to make arguments for things that are totally unrelated to marriage, like the Safe Schools campaign. Um, And that throws open kind of a whole other can of worms because they will be essentially 
using taxpayers' money to argue against things that are not actually related to the, the function of the plebiscite. And not necessarily factually correct. The Advertising Standards Bureau notes that, quote, there's no legal requirement for the content of political advertising to be factually correct. But if an ad doesn't need to be accurate, how then does it help people make an informed decision? Um, I would wager that it doesn't. Um, I think we will see a lot of... um, people straight out stating that, and we're we're already seeing this, that same-sex marriage is explicitly related to things like the Safe Schools Coalition, like transgender people in bathrooms, like your kids being indoctrinated, things that scare people. And the linkage of same-sex marriage with those issues is a really, really powerful weapon for the No campaign, and they are absolutely going to wield it in this debate. And um, these ad regulations are, I think, definitely going to give them the ability to to weaponise that strategy. And I think we're going to see a lot of advertisements relating to children. Because when you think about it, how many arguments are there actually against marriage equality itself? Just marriage equality. Not many. And what is a good use tool of fear? It's children. I think that so much of the No campaign is going to be pinned to our children and how they're raised and what they think. And it's going to be pushed a lot on them, which is going to make it even more terrible for the queer community. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down for the No campaign to um, free speech, or at least their idea of what free speech means. And if you look at how marriage equality ads on TV have kind of played out in the past year and a half. One of the things that is always referred to is Marriage Alliance, which is one of the, the groups that which is expected to play a large part in the No campaign, did um, put out some ads last year that they ran on Sky, they ran on Fairfax websites. Um, they initially ran on Foxtel and then after a huge commercial backlash, lots of people complained to Foxtel, said that they would cancel their subscriptions. Um, Foxtel pulled the ads. They were also... Um, went to, I believe, 7 and 10, who both declined to to run the ads for commercial purposes. And so there is not a lot of sympathy to be had for for big businesses, but in in this case, they are private companies and they did make a commercial decision not to run those ads and that was based on feedback from their viewers. So when you're looking at that and thinking about it from a free speech perspective, as the No campaign often are, they're looking at that and saying, you decided not to run our ads, that's an infringement of our free speech. But a lot of other people would look at it and say, you ran an ad, your, your um, consumers spoke up and said, we don't like that ad and we don't want to use your service if you run that ad. And and from another perspective, that is, is a use of free speech in society. The ad was run, they didn't like it, the company pulled it. And it's stupid as well, the conflict of like conflicting free speech with that as well. Free speech, one, we don't actually have it in Australia. But two, free speech doesn't mean a right to a platform. Not having your advertisements run isn't stifling the debate or shutting the debate down. You can still have the debate and you can still have those discussions on other platforms and use other means to debate. It just just means that you don't get to pay to have your message broadcast to the unwilling millions. I'm interested in that because I, I want to know, like, will the compulsory airing of yes and no campaigns in the lead up to this plebiscite actually impact on the kind of commentary and analysis that we can expect from media outlets? I think absolutely. Yeah, of course it's going to fit in, especially if there's a really effective ad and columnists from certain news organisations who are against marriage equality see an ad getting traction. Of course they'll jump on that, jump on those lines and start writing, writing along those arguments. But I also think there's obviously going to be a lot of analysis about the really terrible ads and I think that they will be caught out and they will be caught out properly. It's interesting you say that because the last time that we had this debate was last Mardi Gras, Um, when the Australian Marriage Foundation 
put an ad to SBS to air during the Mardi Gras. SBS had, then had the right to reject it, and they did. And unexpectedly, the then national director of Get Up, Sam McLean, stood up in defence of the Australian Marriage Foundation, who he campaigns against, to say that they should have a democratic right to voice their opinion and that a healthy democracy is one where healthy debate flourishes. He then also went on to say that the AMS ad is so predictably bad that it will do more harm than good. So ultimately, he thinks sunshine is the best disinfectant. Well, there's certainly an argument for that, but I I think it was a legit decision by SBS. You don't need anti-marriage equality advertisements airing during the Mardi Gras. It's just trolling, isn't it? You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Bridie Jabour, Lane Sainty, and Bernard Keane. Coinciding with the release of Snowden the movie, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and those media outlets that published whistleblower Edward Snowden's leaks have been advocating for charges against him to be dropped so that he can return to the US a free man. Well, all except the Washington Post. Not only is the Post not joining the chorus, it's calling for Snowden, the man whose information helped the Post to win a Pulitzer, to be prosecuted. This is unprecedented in US media history. So why'd they do it? Well, Snowden leaked the press a lot of top-secret information. The Post's editorial, a standalone section from the Post's news organisation, claims, aside from the domestic metadata program, there was no public interest in revealing any of the other programs, like PRISM. In fact, doing so was harmful. But the metadata program wasn't revealed by the Post. It was revealed by The Guardian. Writing for The Intercept, another outlet that worked with Snowden, Glenn Greenwald has written, If the post-editorial page editors had any intellectual honesty at all, this is what they would be doing. Accepting institutional responsibility for what they apparently regard as a grievous error that endangered the public, rather than pretending that it was all the doing of their source. Snowden never revealed documents to the public himself. He revealed details to the media outlets. He left it to their editorial discretion to decide what should be published. Bernard, does it strike you that the Washington Post's criticism is a bit hypocritical? Oh, it's extraordinarily hypocritical. Um, as, uh, as plenty of people have pointed out, it's absurd that this is a, a newspaper that won a Pulitzer Prize for aspects of, uh, of, of stories source from Edward Snowden and then the editorial board turns around and demands that uh, uh, that he be uh, that he be prosecuted I mean in Australia we don't have this sort of phenomenon of, of I don't think of, of separate editorial boards who kind of you know run the op-ed pages versus what goes on in the newsroom but um, ultimately if you're a whistleblower well why on earth would you go to the Washington Post you might go to the newsroom you might uh, um, uh, be handled very well and with confidentiality and, and uh, uh, with uh, with excellent journalism from the newsroom. But if the editorial board is going to call for you to be locked up, and you know we've seen a lot of whistleblowers under the Obama administration locked up or prosecuted, then um, you know why on earth would you go to the Washington Post anymore? Given that um, that they're calling for the locking up of the most important, I I, th- I think even more important than Chelsea Manning. Uh, cables, certainly the most important um, uh, act of whistleblowing in the US 
since Daniel Ellsberg in terms of alerting us to uh, some really fundamental illegalities being conducted by US institutions. Important and considered and thoughtful whistleblower as well. He didn't do a data dump. He didn't release everything into the world like he could have done. He could not have had a more considered approach to what he did with this data, handing it over to news organisations so that they could make sure that they did the the retractions. And they did. There hasn't been a single complaint that has been stood up that any lives have been endangered by anything that was printed from those cables. And also this argument from the Washington Post editorial board that none of it wasn't in the public interest is just bizarre when even President Obama has conceded that things that were, were revealed in there was in the public interest. And it has changed laws in America and also led to this worldwide discussion about surveillance. Absolutely. The, the key fact here is that it led to a change of laws. I mean, Congress decided that it was important enough that what Snowden had revealed uh, was, was going to form the basis for a change of legislation about what the NSA could do. And if that's not in the public interest, then, you know, I don't know what is. It's definitionally in the public interest, it seems to me. So if this is going to deter whistleblowers from coming forward to the Washington Post, why did they do it? It strikes me as if they're shooting themselves in the foot. What have they got to gain from this? I wish I had an answer to that question, but I just don't. Their their decision doesn't make sense to me on numerous levels. Um, It doesn't stand up logically. It it doesn't stand up as a good move for, for the newsroom. Um, I really don't have a good answer to that. Is it a prank? Did a 12-year-old write this? <laughs> what, like, I just, I've got no idea what is running through the heads of the people who okayed this. I, and I, I can't, you, you know, you can always see the opposing side's point of view or where they're coming from in a lot of arguments. But in this, I just have no idea what the motivation or the thought process was. I've been trying to wrap my head around it and at a stretch... Is it that they're trying to signal to the powers that be that they are an upstanding organisation that's on the side of the state? You've put your finger on it a a, a bit, I think, because I think major US media institutions like the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, do feel a lot of conflict about, internal conflict about, major whistleblower acts. And we saw this with the New York Times and 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 the Chelsea Manning cables and their dealings with Julian Assange. I mean, once they got hold of the cables, not from Assange, but from The Guardian, um, they then went off to Foggy Bottom to talk to the State Department about what the State Department wanted redacted from the cables. They wanted to maintain their relationship with, with, uh, with the political and bureaucratic elite whilst providing this, uh, this you know, remarkable um, uh, dump of material. And I think perhaps that's some sort of similar psychologies at work with the Washington Post editorial board. They, you know, they're a bunch of worthy people who think that, uh, you know, they still want to be card-carrying members of the establishment and be able to go to the right Georgetown cocktail parties. And mm. uh, and they probably uh, feel as though they're a little bit more able to do that if they're uh, if they're saying that that, uh, that dastardly Edward Snowden chap should be... Um, uh, should be uh, prosecuted if they can ever get their hands on it. So the editorial highlights that it isn't the revelation of NSA's domestic surveillance operations that they took issue with, that it was the exposure of a prism, that they're spying on citizens outside of the US they said shouldn't have been made public. Is this suggestion that journalists shouldn't prioritise other nations' rights and securities over their own is, is that also a little worrying? Like, I thought we're living, like, in a global village here. I Not thought... in America, mate. No. The rest of us All are. Right. Okay. 
Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate. So thank you very much to my guest, Bridie Javor. Thank you. Thank you. Lane Sainty, thank you. Thanks. And to Bernard Keane on the line from Canberra. Pleasure. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. My name's Marcus Costello. You can catch us at the same time next week. 